what up Cavs Nation, I'm your host Ethan Sands and I'm back with another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up Chris? What's going on Ethan, how are you man? Man, Chris, today was a busy day and we got a jammed pack episode today. Buckle up. Chris, let's start with the team news. You want the good news or you want the bad news? Sure. Let's start with the bad news. All right. Cavs backup center Tristan Thompson has been suspended for 25 games due to violating the league's anti-drug program. Thompson tested positive for performance-enhancing substances ibutamorin and SARM LGD4033. And for those who don't know, ibutamorin is known to improve athletic performance by stimulating growth hormone and insulin-like growth factor 1. These compounds can help maintain muscle mass, strength, and bone density. LGD4033, also known as ligandrol, is linked to an increase in lean muscle mass and also reduces body fat, improves strength and endurance, and reduces inflammation. The Cavs are on an eight-game winning streak, and Tristan has definitely played a part in that. What are your thoughts on the situation and how this could impact the Cavs, Chris? It's a blow, Ethan. There's no doubt about that. I think everybody inside the organization is feeling this one today. The vibe around the team is that it's a tough blow. He was filling the backup center minutes. He was in the every night rotation. He had long displaced Damian Jones in the every night rotation. And I think even people inside the organization would admit that on the court, Tristan was making maybe more of an impact than some thought he would be able to at this stage of his career. He brought toughness, he brought energy, he brought tenacity, he brought an ability to rebound second chance opportunities. But like, even though he's a valuable piece of this team and he has a clearly defined role that he was thriving in, the Cavs have already overcome much worse than this this season. It's not like they're losing Donovan Mitchell. It's not like they're losing Jared Allen. It's not like they're losing George Niang or Max Struess. Like, Tristan was probably the last guy of the every night rotation. And if there's a position where it feels like the Cavs can get by, I think it's the center spot because Jared Allen has been one of the best centers in the entire NBA this year. He has a legitimate all-star case. And on top of that, Evan Mobley can play the backup five minutes when he comes back from injury, which I get the sense is getting closer and closer and closer. It is a blow. There's no doubt about it. But I think the Cavs have the kind of components to better navigate this one simply because I think they were going to be looking for places where they could split up Jared and Evan, stagger their minutes, and get Evan more opportunities to play the five anyway. And this makes it a little bit easier for J.B. Bickerstaff to do that rather than taking somebody out of his every night rotation. The decision is essentially made for him. Right, and we talked about Tristan's leadership, and this is kind of a detriment to that on a large scale. Yeah. 
I don't think so. All right, give me that. Why do you think it is not a detriment to his leadership? Because I think all of the things that he's already accomplished throughout his career, the level of professionalism that he has shown throughout his career, that's already been established. And he's still going to be able to be around the team. He can still travel with the team. He can still participate in practices. He can still give advice to guys like Darius Garland. Just because a guy makes a mistake and he made a mistake and he's being suspended for 25 games, it doesn't change the fact that he's an NBA champion. It doesn't change the fact that he's got more playoff experience than anybody on this roster. It doesn't change the fact that he's been around so long and seen so many things throughout the course of his career that he can relay to these guys on an every night basis. It doesn't change their level of belief in Tristan. It doesn't change their level of trust in him. And it doesn't change how he's viewed in that locker room. That's fair. I want to let the folks know who are listening that the last person that tested positive for taking leg and draw was Joakim Noah in 2017, and he was suspended for 20 games. So enough of the bad. Let's get to the good side of things. The Cavs have two finalists for the 2024 USA Men's National Team player pool. Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen were announced as part of the 41 athlete player pool. This isn't a part of the official 12-man roster that will travel to Paris for the 2024 Olympics, but the selections will be made from this player pool. Although this isn't the major announcement yet, it's still good to see Cavs players getting recognition in a good sense, especially today. Especially with Jared Allen not being listed on the All-Star rankings for fan votes and potentially still working to get an All-Star candidacy. How important or how good is this to see for the Cavs and for Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen, Chris? Jared's got a background with Team USA. Donovan Mitchell has a background with Team USA. I was actually in Orlando last year for a road trip toward the end of the year. And Grant Hill was there. Grant Hill, obviously, a big part of Team USA in constructing this roster. He took over for Jerry Colangelo. So he had conversations with Jared Allen while the Cavs were set to play the Orlando Magic, just about Jared's willingness to participate with Team USA, expressing interest in Jared, letting him know kind of like where he stands amongst the other options for Team USA. So Jared's been on their radar for a while, and Donovan obviously has Team USA experience as well. I think any time any player has an opportunity to be part of Team USA, whether it's the select team, whether it's the World Cup, whether it's the Olympics, it's a different level of preparation for the following season. Like we saw Darius Garland, Ethan, a couple of years ago, use his time with Team USA, and it was only the select team but he was around Jason Tatum and Zach Levine and some of the best players in the entire NBA. And we saw him use that time with Team USA to build confidence, and it was a springboard into his all-star season. We saw Ricky Rubio a couple of years ago use his time with the Spanish national team to vault into the season and be one of the best versions of Ricky Rubio that we've ever seen in the NBA, all because he played in highly competitive, pressure-packed games leading into a new season. So if Jarrett has an opportunity to make this team, if he has an opportunity just to go to their training camp in preparation, it's going to be beneficial for him and it's going to be beneficial for the Cavs. And the same thing goes for Donovan Mitchell. So 
this is a big honor. I'm not sure that Jarrett's actually going to make it. You know, Bam stands out. Joel Embiid stands out. There's a certain kind of player that Team USA typically looks for. Jarrett sort of fits the profile in terms of his switchability, in terms of his versatility, in terms of his length. So it's really cool for Jarrett and Donovan to be in this pool of candidate, and and we'll see just how far they progress into it. Yeah, Chris, and you mentioned how Donovan Mitchell and Ricky Rubio have elevated their games based on playing in USA events, and Jarrett Allen is having a great season as it is, stepped up with Evan Mobley being out and is showing out, so... To see him go to another level on top of the level that he's already gone to this season would be, I think, scary for the NBA. Well, Jared said something last night, Ethan, that I thought was really, really interesting. He was talking about early in his career, one of the assistant coaches that that kind of mentored him and helped him develop into the player that he is now. It's Brett Brielmeyer, who actually spent some time with the Cavs, but... Early in Jared's career, he was with the Brooklyn Nets. And the thing that those two guys talked about was, let's build a foundation. Let's find the things that you do great, that make you an impactful player. And let's focus on those things first and foremost. And let's quote unquote, master those things. And then once you feel like you're at a level where you're doing all of those things that you need to do as a big to be successful, and to be a great player. Then let's look at expanding the game a little bit. And I think you've seen that from Jared Allen. Look, he's still a relatively young player who has untapped potential, who could certainly continue to improve. He's only 25 years old. So just because Jared right now isn't, you know, the most polished offensive player when it comes to jump shots or extending his game out to the perimeter... He continues to get better as a playmaker and passer, but, you know, he's not to the level of Jokic or Bam Adebayo or something like that. Because he feels so good about the other important aspects of his game, it seems like he's more willing to start exploring and trying to evolve a little bit more. And everybody improves at their own rate. There is no such thing as linear development. But for somebody like Jarrett, it's understandable why people think that there's still more to pull out of him. And I think he continues to show, even if it's just in small sample sizes, Ethan, he continues to show little flashes each and every night that he can be more and more involved on the offensive end and he can do more and more things on the offensive end. For example, he's averaging a career high three assists per game. He's never been at two in his entire career. So that shows a guy who is still getting better and better and better. And I think that development can continue, especially if he spends any time with Team USA. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about Evan Mobley's ceiling being ridiculously high, but I think we also sometimes neglect the ceiling of Jared Allen. And I don't think we're doing that anymore because of his play continuously growing, especially becoming a facilitator, like you mentioned, and also just being an offensive hub like we've seen over the last couple of games and since Evan Mobley's been out. So we'll definitely get to see him continue to grow and see how high his ceiling is. And as you mentioned, he's still young. Like So we'll get to see that for a couple more years to come. And back to what the Cavs fans had been saying about trading Jared Allen, 
I know y'all are happy y'all didn't do that because with Tristan out right now, and I don't know who you would have gone and got, but the Cavs would have been in deep, deep water. All right, Chris, let's move over to the overall NBA storylines from this past week. Terry Rozier being traded to the Miami Heat. Terry is a known Cavs killer in his last 12 games against the Cavs. He scored under 20 points once with multiple 30-point and a 40-point game mixed in during that stretch. Now, Chris, the 5th, 6th, and 7th seed in the Eastern Conference all made trades to acquire high-profile players that increased the competitiveness of staying above the 7th seed and avoiding the play-in tournament when it comes to the playoff contention. For those that don't understand what I'm saying, the Knicks went and got OG Ananobi, the Pacers went and got Pascal Siakam, and the Heat went and got Terry Rozier. What are your thoughts on this, Chris? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, the thing that stands out to me is that heading into the trade deadline, you could identify buyers and sellers, and you could look at some of the teams that are either at the top of their conference or battling for a locked-in playoff spot. Whatever the case may be, whatever category you want to put them in. And the biggest moves that have been made to this point, and there's plenty of time before the trade deadline still on February 8th. But to this point, the biggest moves that have been made with the biggest names have all involved the three teams that matter the most when it comes to the Cavs. And I say that understanding that the Cavs are only two and a half games back of Philly. They're three games back of Milwaukee. But we've talked about this so much, Ethan. I view Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia just on a different tier than the Cavs. And because of that, to me, I'm looking at New York, Miami, and Indiana as the biggest threats to the Cavs getting one of the locked-in playoff spots in the Eastern Conference. Because the Cavs and other teams in the East, they do not want to have to play their way into the playoffs through the play-in tournament. Anything can happen in that kind of scenario. So the Cavs, given all the expectations, all the pressure, all they've already overcome to get to this point where they're 26 and 15, they need to finish this off this year with a guaranteed trip to the playoffs. And the way to do that is to stay in the top six in the Eastern Conference. But New York getting OG, Miami getting Scary Terry, and Indiana getting Pascal, those three moves, the three biggest ones so far, those play a role in whether the Cavs stay in the top six in the Eastern Conference, a significant role in whether the Cavs stay in the top six in the Eastern Conference. And if anything, Ethan, it puts pressure on the Cavs to go out and do something. Now, look, they could sit here and they could say, hey, we really don't have to do anything at the trade deadline because we can theoretically view the return of Evan Mobley and the return of Darius Garland as additions to what we were already doing. And I could understand why the team would look at it that way. But I think when other teams around you that you're competing with get better, I think it puts more pressure on you to try and do the same. And that doesn't mean that the Cavs are going to go out and make some kind of blockbuster trade and they have limited assets and everybody understands how difficult it is in their situation with such few draft picks into the future to make any kind of move that is going to have a significant impact on the outcome of this season. But 
if they could boost their rotation, if they could boost their bench, if they could pull off a two-for-one type trade, just like any incremental improvement ahead of the trade deadline, I think would allow the Cavs to feel comfortable with where they are at and their ability to hold off New York, Miami, and Indiana. Yeah, Chris, and I think the key word you used is improvement because you look at the Knicks, the Pacers, and the Miami Heat, and none of these teams really gave up anything that makes them seem like they did not improve. I mean, Bruce Brown is a loss for Indiana. I don't think we can downplay that. Now, they got Pascal Siakam, and that's going to be a lethal two-man game with Tyrese Halliburton, but Bruce Brown is not nothing. We got to say that. That's extremely fair. But what I'm thinking is now with Miami trading away Kyle Lowry, I wanted to get your thoughts on if the Cavs could get Kyle Lowry as a veteran backup point guard on a veteran minimum if he's bought out by the Hornets. It's an interesting thing to think about because if you look at this roster construction, that seems to be a hole. Now, the Cavs like Craig Porter Jr. He has been a revelation. Every time he gets a consistent opportunity or a bigger opportunity, he tends to come through. He doesn't look rattled. He plays anything but like a rookie. So there are things to like about him. But there's just a lack of experience and know-how that he has. And you have to wonder if you're a team like the Cavs, how much can you really bank on if you have to go to Craig Porter Jr. in a seven-game series, him handling that moment? Or would you feel more comfortable with somebody who has already been in that environment, somebody who has run a team before, somebody who you have a little bit more of an idea of how they're going to respond and how productive they're going to be in those kinds of situations. Kyle Lowry has a relationship with J.B. Bickerstaff. It goes back to their time together with the Houston Rockets. And the Cavs aren't in cap hell like some of these other teams around the NBA, some of these other legitimate competitors around the NBA that Kyle would probably want to go to if he got bought out, right? I'm sure Phoenix would be an appealing landing spot for somebody like him. But like there are certain teams based on their salary cap situation that cannot sign him if he gets bought out. The Cavs don't have those same salary cap restrictions, and I do think it's something that fans should put on their radar. I do think this would be an appealing place for Kyle, and I do think that the Cavs feel like there's enough of a need to explore that and bring in somebody with a little bit more experience a little bit more of a resume than what Craig Porter Jr. has. Yeah, and again, the Cavs got to say thank you to Ricky Rubio for giving some of that money back because that helps with the salary restrictions for sure. But Chris, I'm a little parched from all the information we've been giving out. So we're going to take a quick break so I can get a quick drink. And for our listeners, if you like food and drinks, and who doesn't, Cleveland.com is breaking new ground with our lively new podcast about dining and drinking in Greater Cleveland. The hosts talk about the latest foodie happenings, joined by the most in-the-know experts in town. It's called Dine Drink CLE, and you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Give it a listen and quench your thirst and feed that appetite. When we come back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast, we're going to discuss how the Cavs might have expedited the Bucks' decision to fire their head coach. But before then, become a Cavs insider 
and interact with me and Chris by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from Chris and me. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. The Milwaukee Bucks fired first-year head coach Adrian Griffin on Tuesday and the team's 135-95 loss to the Cavs on January 17th could have expedited the decision. Obviously, the Bucks dropping to 22nd in the defensive rating rankings just a year after finishing 4th in those rankings was a big reason as well. And the Cavs put Milwaukee's defense, especially without Giannis in that game, on full display on national television. Chris, what do you think about the Bucks' move, especially being in Milwaukee ahead of the back-to-back against the Bucks to end the week with the Cavs? Even to me, this is about buy-in and belief and a lack of it from the Milwaukee Bucks. Giannis has spoken multiple times throughout the course of this season about the strategies that they use on defense and trying to figure out what was best for their particular personnel. There's a quote that he has out there where he's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to guard the three-point line? Are we going to crash paint? Are we going to double guys in the post? Like we have to figure out our direction. Right now, we're giving up everything. And then Bobby Portis called a players-only meeting, and they talked about strategies and schemes. So to me, it seemed like there was a lack of belief in Adrian Griffin and his ability to get the Bucs where they want to go, which is to the top of the Eastern Conference, back to the NBA Finals, and ultimately to win a championship. And when you have a ticking clock the way that Milwaukee does, I mean, Dame is somebody who is toward the tail end of his career, and he wants to compete for a championship. And, and Chris Middleton looks a lot different than the Chris Middleton of a couple of years ago. And you have a bloated salary cap and you have all of these expectations. The clock is just ticking at a different rate in Milwaukee. There's a reason why they fired Mike Budenholzer after last year, because they feel the pressure. They want to keep Giannis happy. They want to win more championships. And they see this core potentially as coming to its end at some point in the near future. So for them, I think they're looking at it saying, Was this the right coach to get us to the place that we ultimately want to get to? And it seemed like the answer to that question was no. So I think this reminds me very much of what the Cavs did in 2016 when they fired David Blatt. They ignored the record. They ignored where they were in the standings. They ignored the numbers on offense, defense, net rating, all that kind of stuff. And they just said, is this the right guy? And they determined it wasn't. And I think that's what Milwaukee has done as well. I think they look at their record and they see a little bit of fool's gold. And they see a talented team that was going to win games anyway. And they felt like they were probably winning those games in spite of their coach, not because of their coach. Right, Chris. And obviously when the Bucks went and got Damian Lillard, the expectations went from we want to be in the NBA championship to NBA championship or bust. 
especially you talk about the core group of Giannis Antetokounmpo just signing another contract to stay, then Damian Lillard coming, and Chris Middleton's not getting any younger and is showing signs of not being able to adjust on the offensive end with two powerhouse weapons on that side of the floor. So it's interesting to see. I honestly think it might have been premature. Obviously, in your first season as a head coach, that's not how you wanted to go down, especially when you're second in the Eastern Conference. But it's a dog-eat-dog world. The other thing that I'll say, Ethan, is if they go with Doc Rivers, and it seems like that's where this is all headed, okay, on one hand, the players will probably be happier about that. On another hand, the players will probably believe in him more than they believed in Adrian Griffin. Doc has an ability to connect with players. He has an ability to manage egos. He has an ability to get guys to buy in. He did that with a bunch of different kinds of players throughout the course of his career, Boston, Philadelphia, you name it, right? Managing personalities is a big part of being a successful NBA coach. In saying that, to me, it feels like Milwaukee needs a problem solver and Milwaukee needs a better tactician. And Philadelphia basically looked at Doc Rivers and said, we appreciate all the things that you did for us. We appreciate the way that you helped manage all the different personalities that you dealt with in Philadelphia. You were able to get these guys to a certain level, but we need a better tactician. We need a better guy when it comes to X's and O's. When he gets into a seven-game series against Eric Spolstra, he has a better chance. When he gets into a seven-game series against Michael Malone, he's got a better chance. You know what I mean? Like, that's why Philadelphia went that direction, because they felt like something was missing from Doc. And the piece was in-game adjustments, X's and O's, strategy schemes, tactics. So Doc, that's not his strength. That's not his forte. And it feels like the Milwaukee Bucks need that kind of coach, and they're not getting that kind of coach. And I just wonder if that's going to show up again in a seven-game series the way that it has in the past. Yeah, Chris. I mean, my thing is Doc Rivers supposedly has been around the Bucks organization right. for a good minute now. As a consultant. As a consultant, especially after Damian Lillard's former coach on the Portland Trailblazers for his first nine seasons walked out before their preseason finale. And you think about the problems that they've still had while Doc Rivers was supposedly giving advice to this first-year coach. It's sketchy to me. Like, I don't like it. I don't like it, Chris. It's weird. Like, why would you take advice from someone? The advice is seemingly not working. Fire the guy that advice is not working with, and then hire the guy that has been giving advice the entire time. Well, here's the thing. Like, if Doc is in a consultant role, that doesn't mean things stop and start with him. You know what I mean? Like he can give advice to Adrian Griffin. He can be aware of what's going on within the team. He can do all of the things that a coaching consultant would do. But at the end of the day, Adrian Griffin was the head coach. It was his offense. It was his defense, his schemes, his decisions on the sidelines. So just because things didn't go the way that maybe people in Milwaukee wanted them to for the Bucks at the beginning of the season, and just because 
they were having some ups and downs throughout. To me, that's not a reflection on Doc Rivers or his consulting ability. To me, that's a reflection on Adrian Griffin and a level of buy-in that the players just did not have for that guy. And, and that's sometimes, Ethan, what it comes down to. Do these guys show a level of belief in the guy on the sidelines? And if you don't have the player's belief or the player's trust, you don't have a shot. I mean, Giannis was scratching plays the way that LeBron James was scratching David Blatt plays, right? I think those things were problematic moving forward for the Bucs, and those things were not going to change unless there was a different voice that was moved in there. I can agree with that. All right, Chris, last topic of the pod. It's been a long one, but I cannot ignore this. We've talked about defense being an afterthought for most teams in today's game as of late, and that was on full display on Monday as the NBA went crazy with scoring on the 18th anniversary of Kobe Bryant's 81-point game. Joel Embiid had 70 in a win over the Spurs, while Carl Anthony Towns had 60 points in a loss to the Hornets and at one point was benched in the fourth quarter. Timberwolves head coach Chris Finch went off postgame about how they mistreated the game and got what they deserved. Anthony Edwards said it turned into them just trying to see how many points Carl Anthony Towns could get rather than winning the game and surprisingly, Anthony Edwards took accountability for the loss. What do you think about the games on Monday and the state of the league as a whole, Chris? Man, Donovan Mitchell was paying very close attention to what was happening last night in the NBA. He wanted to know exactly how many Embiid had and how many he finished with, and he was paying close attention to Cat and how he was doing in the fourth quarter because the Cavs game ended. We got into the locker room, and I think there were about nine minutes left in the game for the Timberwolves. And Donovan was like, hey, Chris, how many does Cat have? How much time is left? Like, you know, Donovan doesn't want anybody else to get 72 points. He doesn't want anybody to get 75 points. He likes the fact that, you know, most recently he was the guy scoring 71. So... I thought that was really, really fascinating. I thought it was an exciting night in the NBA, pulling up those box scores and seeing the offensive explosion. And I think it just goes to show where this game is headed and what these teams are capable of and what these players are capable of. J.B. Bickerstaff has talked multiple times, Ethan. He is a defense-first coach. He is a very good X's and O's tactician when it comes to the defensive end of the floor. Like the Cavs use unique, different concepts and principles on the defensive end that has allowed them to consistently bend since JB has been the head coach, one of the premier defensive teams in the league. And even JB, that kind of defensive mind has said, hey, I've got to recalibrate my thinking on what is successful defensively nowadays. I've got to change what I can expect from my team defensively. Because this is a league right now that favors the offensive end of the floor. The rules dictate that offensive players are going to consistently have an advantage. I mean, you've got four teams in the NBA scoring more than 120 points per game. Like, <laughs> that's wild to think about that. It seems like even every single night, 
we're seeing these teams get into the 120s and the 130s. So this is an era of pace and space, three-point shooting, and offense. And yeah, it's really important to have a defense like the Celtics have and the Cavs have and the Timberwolves and the 76ers do. But like, if you're not top half of the NBA in offense, if you don't have that kind of capability, it is going to be very, very difficult to consistently win in today's NBA. And Chris, you mentioned 120s and 130s. The New Orleans Pelicans just dropped 153 on the Utah Jazz (laughs) on Tuesday. Today. Like, this is absolutely nutty. Like, we used to get mad about the All-Star game reaching or nearing 200 points. We're almost there for regular season games. It's getting out of hand to me. I love the fact that people and the skills are growing and the game is growing in that aspect. But good Lord, I wish I missed some defense. Like sometimes when J.B. Biggerstaff is talking about how he's a defensive minded coach and he wants the league to go back to being like that or I'm just not in my head like, please. but no, everybody knows that it's only going to get worse. At some point, there's going to be about five Wembys in the league, seven foot four (laughs) guys just going ham on the rim and actually having people who can lob him the ball. But these dudes are so talented and so skilled nowadays when they come into the NBA. They're able to make such an impact so quickly. Let me ask you this, Ethan. Of the top 15 teams in the NBA in offensive rating, top 15, how many do you think have a losing record? I want to say five. Two. Losing record? It's only two? It's only two with a losing record that are in the top 15 on offense. Golden State and the Atlanta Hawks. Wow. Winning nowadays in the NBA is tied to how good is your offense. And with that being said, that'll wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from Chris and me. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe. We out.